Well, quite a few number of years ago, I was meeting uh, in my office with a couple who were in their 60s who were planning to get married. And uh, this was uh, going to be a second marriage for both of them. Uh, we kind of came to a point where we realized that they had several things they had to unlearn from their previous marriages. And at one point, I, I turned to this uh, soon-to-be husband, and I said, do you realize that when you get married, you're going to need to say, I love you every day? I got to tell you, I can still picture their faces at that moment. It was priceless. She just lit up. Her face just burst into this smile that, that covered her entire face. She was like, she was so eager and pleased to, to think of the idea of a husband that would tell her that, tell her I love you every day. Now, now the, the, the guy's response was different than that. <laughs> his jaw dropped down, his eyes popped open. He said, I had never thought of that before. And he confessed that, that he would never practice that in his first marriage. But he also seemed kind of relieved that, okay, now I know what it means to express my love to my wife every day. Now, obviously, actions are important, right? That, loving someone by how you live is really important, but it's not enough. We have to say it. So today we're starting a two-Sunday series on worship. Worship is about expressing our love for God. And yes, we worship God with our actions. I mean, I think that's what we're going to do on Outside the Wall Sunday. There's one more small way that we worship God with our actions. But we also need to worship God with our words. We need to say it. And... We're going to learn uh, how to worship God from the last book of the Bible. Um, how many of you have ever read the book of Revelations or tried to read it? Quite, quite a few of you. It is some of the most bizarre stuff you will ever find, right? I mean, you're going to read about uh, the beast and 666 and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Strange stuff. A couple nights ago, I had a dream. And in my dream, a whole bunch of the extended family were gathering together. And then we went downstairs, but instead of it being a house, suddenly it was a bowling alley. And instead of throwing ball, bowling balls down the lane, we were throwing cast iron skillets. <laughs> Big ones! Uh, I mean, where did that come from, right? Uh, and, and of course, that's sort of the core of the story. But as you can imagine, there were all these little things that were happening, little images and, and side stories happening. And, and it was all so confusing. Dreams are weird. And that's kind of how the book of Revelation feels sometimes, isn't it? Um, it's like a dream. It was written by a man named John. And it's not a dream. It's a vision. And a vision, in this vision, he went to some place real, and yet it's described and expressed in, in symbolic language. Now, I know for some of you this is going to go like, oh man, what kind of church did I get into today? And, and maybe you feel like, okay, maybe you're not even sure you believe in God, or, or you're, you're pretty sure you don't, or you're not sure if Jesus was any more than a man. Then I would just say, I'm so glad you're here. And it's okay, you don't have to believe what the next 
person next to you believes. I want you to know that, that when we read the Bible, we're still trying to learn it ourselves. And you can just learn right along with us and, and maybe God will, will connect with you in some way. Now, what do we know about John, the, the person who wrote it? He lived near the end of the first century uh, A.D. He might have been the same John who was the fisherman disciple of Jesus decades earlier, or he might have been another John. We don't really know. Uh, he lived in Asia Minor, which is where the country of Turkey is now, and because he kept preaching and proclaiming that it's Jesus and not Caesar who is Lord of all and ruler of the world, they kicked him out. He was exiled to the prison island called Patmos. And then, one Sunday, there on the island of Patmos, Jesus appears to him. Not, not like just normal Jesus, like looking at a person, but Jesus in a vision. And Jesus' hair is white. His eyes are like blazing fire. His feet, it says, are the color of glowing bronze. His face shines like the sun. In other words, I'm guessing the appearance of Jesus is beyond earthly description. Now, if you're a Jesus follower in Asia Minor in the 90s AD, life is pretty hard. Everybody's expected to worship Caesar. I mean, it was a growing religion of the time uh, you're supposed to go to the imperial temple and participate in the festivities you're supposed to claim and proclaim that Caesar is Lord now if you're a Jew you don't have to do it Roman law gives you an exemption but only for Jews and for a while Jesus' followers were sort of grandfather, grandfathered under that Jewish clause but not anymore. Now most of the, of the Jesus followers, most of the Christians are Gentiles and the synagogue's not going to claim them. So what happens? When you're a Christian in that day and you refuse to bow to Caesar, well, first of all, nobody's going to do business with you. And so you're probably going to end up sliding into severe poverty you might end up spending some time in a filthy jail cell somewhere, maybe with your arms and feet in stocks. And if a certain person turns you in, could be the end of your life. And all of this persecution, I mean, like, Jesus, I thought life was supposed to be wonderful following you. Why is it so terrible? I mean, God, where are you? Uh, Jesus, how can you be Lord when it seems like Caesar and his minions have all the power? So, Jesus appears to John and asks him to, to write this down and send it to all the seven churches in Asia Minor because they need to see the full picture. They need to see the, the side of reality that's normally hidden. They need to know the old, who's the only one on the throne that ultimately matters. So I'm going to ask you, ask if you would, to open your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 4. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 1239. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, just take the Pew Bible home. You can have it. Happy reading, okay? Now, at the start of Revelation 4, uh, Jesus leads John to a doorway into heaven. 
And suddenly John is caught up in the spirit, transported to this other kind of reality, where he, and he finds himself in a royal throne room. Now, who sits on the throne? Is it an old guy with a long white beard? No, that would be Santa Claus. He compares God's appearance to dazzling, radiant gems. And around the throne was a rainbow, he says, that sparkles like an emerald. Now, I think these are the only words that John can find through his own experience to describe the brilliance of the presence of God. And who's there with God? Go to verse 4 with me, will you? Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, much of the language of Revelation is symbolic, and we can't always know exactly the right way to interpret it. But, but these 24 elders, who do they represent? Well, I believe the 24 elders represent all of God's people. If you add the 12 tribes of Israel to Jesus' 12 apostles, you get 24 representing God's people from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we are part of that scene. We are part of God's people, past, present, and future, all together dressed in white, which means that we've been cleansed of our sins. Or as it says later in Revelation, their robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Then it says the 24 elders are wearing gold crowns. Why is that? Well, earlier, Jesus tells uh, people who are about to, you know, experience terrible, suffer terrible persecution, that, he, that if they persevere, if they, if they remain faithful, he will give them a victor's crown. So this must be their victor's crown for staying faithful. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff we could unpack here. We could spend all day doing it. But let's skip down to the next paragraph. Here we encounter the four living creatures, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. Each one has six wings, so these are odd creatures. And what's really weird is that they're covered with eyes. It's like Mr. Mr. Potato Head gone crazy with eyes everywhere, you know? The four living creatures seem to represent all of creation. And the eyes probably mean that God always sees his creatures wherever they are. Just kind of like the old song we sing, his eye is on the sparrow. Now I want to put up on the screen here the second half of verse 8. And since we are God's creatures, let's join them in their praise. I'll give the lead in. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is the God of past, present, and future. Let's say it again, boldly and a little more slowly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Greek word for holy is related to another word meaning to stand in awe of. 
So when we say, holy, 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 we're saying we stand in awe of you, God. And we stand in awe of God because of who he is. He is holy. How do I describe what it means to be holy? There's an old hymn that I grew up singing called Holy, Holy, Holy. And I especially like how the third verse ends. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and in purity. God is holy, perfect in his power, perfect in his love, perfect in purity. There's no darkness in God. So we're going to sing that hymn right now, kind of sandwiched in before I end the message. Uh, Kayla and Itzy are, will lead us in, in that song. Uh, and I've asked that Itzy sing a couple of verses for us in Spanish. And the reason is that because uh, later in Revelation, when it has all the people, all God's people gathered around giving praise to God, it says that it's God's people from all, every nation, every tribe, and every language. So I'm going to invite you to please stand if you're able and imagine yourself as part of that great company before the throne.
is worship important? Why is worship important? Is God so insecure that he needs constant praise to feel better about himself? I don't think that's it. We worship because God deserves it and we need it. Right? We worship because God deserves it and we need it. When we worship the one true God, we don't bow to false gods. When we worship the God of truth, we don't fall to the world's lies. When we worship the, the Lord God Almighty, we persevere through times of persecution and temptation. If you'll look with me, if you still have your Bible open, to uh, verse 10. It says, they lay their crowns before the throne. So the elders, why do they do that? Why do they take off their crowns and lay them before the throne? You see, it's their way of saying that victory belongs to God. Laying down our crowns says God saved us. We didn't do it. God did it. Laying down our crowns says we surrender our life to God's way. Laying down our crown says, we seek not our own glory, but God's glory. And then the elders pour out their praise to God. And so I'm going to put uh, verse 11 here up on the screen. Let's give God our worship together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This violent world says Caesar deserves all the glory and honor and power, but we don't belong to Caesar. We belong to Jesus. We are citizens of the New Jerusalem. We are part of that great company whose robes have been made white, and we join their song. Now, earlier in the service when we did a blessing for the parents and then for the kids a lot of you joined with me and and raised a hand of blessing uh, and so if you feel like you could do that now in praise to God I would just invite you to join me to lift a hand as we say together you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Have you all been to a concert of Handel's Messiah? 
I, 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 some of you go every year, but, I, but if you've never done it, you've got to do it. I, it's been a long, I was thinking about this, it's been a, so long since I have been to one. I need to go again. Uh, because whenever I go to Handel's Messiah, it is just such a worshipful time. All of, the, all of the lyrics come from Scripture. Did you know that? And at the end of the concert, when they start the Hallelujah Chorus, you hear this, you know, the strings going and, and, and everybody stands. And the choir just comes out. And, and, and I don't know if you know this, but all of the words of the Hallelujah Chorus are from the book of Revelation. Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. And yet silence, silence is also part of worship. In Revelation chapter 8, Jesus opens the final seal of the scroll that reveals God's redemptive plan. And John says, there was silence in heaven. There was silence in heaven. And so normally I would end my message by leading and speaking a prayer, but today I'm not going to do that. Today I'm just going to sit down and we're going to spend about three minutes in silence, which is normally about the time we have in our, our regular prayer time every Sunday. And, and as we spend that three minutes in silence, I would just encourage you to imagine yourself with that company before the throne of God. And after that three minutes, you'll hear the musicians start the, the, our closing song. And when you hear them begin, let's stand and continue to worship.